Clubhouse is a fad. Changed my mind if you aren't familiar with the Clubhouse app, then you're probably just learning OJ Simpson is a double murderer. Actually, that's pretty harsh. There are many reasons a lot of people haven't heard of it, and maybe never will. It's a hyped up fad. I'm on it, as are a few of my better networked, business, and tech friends. Granted, that demographic tends to be biased towards an older crowd. Who's using the app the most seems to be millennials and 30-somethings. To really be a unicorn or IPO at $100 billion and keep growing, however, there need to be some serious stars aligned. The killer app. As we used to say. I can punch quite a number of holes in this app. I've been on it and around it for a few weeks now, and researched and follow what's going on with it. It's in beta right now, which means it's limited to invitees only and is only available on iOS phones, which are only Apple phones, and you have to give out your phone number to activate it. You can reserve a username, even though you don't have an invitation. That's to get people to commit, become excited, and is more marketing strategy than operational necessity. I know that. But I'm not sure everyone does. Here's a list of things I see as problematic for Clubhouse to be a long-term player and not just a really big flash in the pan. We see such things in tech all the time, so let's not forget that when evaluating my reasons Clubhouse is a fad. Also please remember that while some of these reasons may seem petty there are a lot of petty people in the world, so these reasons may be more or less important to you personally. But when trying to grow consistently higher MAU numbers, an app has to universally appealing and designed and marketed, and made. 1. It's for invited members only. 2. The good usernames are taken. 3. It's for outgoing, if not aggressive people. 4. Rooms tend to get crowded. 5. There are a lot of uninteresting clubs. 6. There are a lot of uninteresting rooms. 7. There are a lot of uninteresting users. 8. It's audio only. 9. Archives and searchability are difficult. 10. The onboarding is nil. 11. It intimidates people. 12. It's becoming a popularity contest, which no one really wins in. 13. It's a lot like amateur talk radio. 14. There are a lot of rules. 15. It's easily replicated. For those of you who think I'm wrong, I'm willing to debate it. Maybe on Clubhouse itself. But I can think of some strengths for the Clubhouse app as well. It's no weakling. 1. There are a couple of high-profile people using it. 2. Some topics are interesting. 3. People like to just listen to others talk. 4. Rolling it out as beta and invite-only works sometimes. 5. It has a lot of people and media hyping it up to the people who will like it and use it. Some people may want to debate Clubhouse's pros, but I'm here to explain its cons, because they're the reason I think the Clubhouse app will be a memory before too long. My lists are in no order of priority, but I may come back and rank them as such as time allows and I see Clubhouse grow to the point of saturation, then plummet and reach terminal velocity. Making it invite-only and calling it beta has both pros and cons. The pros are that even though it's being called, beta, I believe that's more of a marketing strategy than a developmental one. I'm not saying it doesn't offer some developmental benefits, such as allowing to pay for server strength as possible, instead of overloading and crashing servers from opening the floodgates. Although that approach isn't what would happen. An example I'd like to use is product T-Hunt that successfully rolled itself out as a beta with invites only. It was very successful but there's a big difference between Product Hunt and Clubhouse. Several, in fact. Product Hunt is an online website that was built by going through Y Combinator by Ryan Hoover, who's savvy with his enterprises. When he rolled out PH, he personally brought people on board, 
which was a lot of work, but it paid off. I was member 14, 30 and he personally invited me and he and I became online acquaintances, which I'm sure he did with everyone. He made joining slash signing up personal and welcoming. Signing up for Clubhouse is different. You have to get an invitation from another person who's a member, and it's like you have someone vouching for you. Even though they may not know you from a hole in the ground. And you never really get to know the founders unless you stalk them down. They're too busy building the app and hanging out in rooms and clubs to chit-chat with every single user. That exclusion slash inclusion factor is psychologically strong. It triggers FOMO worries, and for those who are instinctually collective in nature, it causes them to panic. They must get an invitation ASAP so they can belong. There's some primal human behavior at play in being manipulated. On purpose. Most desired usernames are already taken. That may not seem like a big deal, but it makes it a loser to many people. And I mean the people who are interested in an app like Clubhouse where appearance and self-identity are important. I've seen the types of rooms and people on Clubhouse and they have strong ties to their online identities. Yes, I know the app is an iOS app. Let's pretend that it can also mean online for the sake of this essay. One strength is that it's already globally being used. I've been in rooms where another language other than English is being used several times already, from knowing some internationals. There are about 7,200,000,000 more people on this earth than in the USA, where many people think the earth begins and ends. Not quite. So the app appeals to the entire speaking world, so it scales. And scaling is what it's all about with SaaS. What I think are going to be some insurmountable obstacles is that the app is for people who aren't afraid of speaking in front of others. Even though it's not even close to getting on a stage and talking to 5,000 people, it still intimidates those who are fearful of public speaking, which includes most people on earth. There has been a survey done where people are more afraid of speaking in public than dying. So people would rather die than use this app. Not good. But let's say speaking in front of others becomes easier and a new normal. Even then, you have to be asked to get on stage and you have to wave your hand to speak, and follow clubhouse protocol and know the etiquette and social rules, lest you be decried, shamed, and humiliated by a bunch of strangers. That's pretty harsh. And, even aside from the clubhouse rules, you need to know how to speak in public with some grace and not um, ah, err and stammer your way along an incoherent path of crazy words. Even the best speakers rehearse their speech a lot before getting on stage. It's impromptu on Clubhouse, which adds to fear and the reluctance of participating. And if people don't participate and speak, there is no app. It's reliant on their being interesting and relevant media to absorb, think about and engage with. That's hard after a while. It produces a bell curve sooner or later of just a few speakers that take the winnings, and the rest slide down to either end of the bell down to the long tails. With 5 degrees of freedom. And before you know it, you have 20% of the member creating 80% of the content. Statistically, that could be a lot, but is it sustainable? After a while, it's just going to be talk radio on an app. The media has hyped it all up. Not media with any credibility, mind you. The NY Times, Pete Mag, Social Media Examiner, Business Insider, and a long list of online rags. To many people that use the app, again, these publications define the truth for them and that's the end of that. But for some people, these publications aren't what they profess to be. Which is unbiased, blind, smart, diligent, and wise, which is different from smart. They have agendas and are prejudiced and more often than not, are written by people who have little experience with what they're writing about. I've seen food writers get assigned to finance and tech subjects at some reputable publications which have online media channels. New York Times, I'm looking at you. You, too, Washington Post. Mark Andressen was someone who hyped the app, to begin with. 
that's all it takes for many if not most media to fall over themselves to report on the item and declare it whatever he says it is. I have mixed feelings about Mark, along with quite a few other Silicon Valley darlings. I honestly try to be as unbiased about them as possible. They're gazillionaires and have an interesting life, which always looks greener than it is from my side of the fence, I know. I tend to think he was at the right place at the right time and knew the right people, and his success, at the beginning at least, was no more attributed to that. I have the same feeling for Matt Mullenweg and Mark Zuckerberg, and a long list of SV billionaires. Even if they're only such on paper. To sustain their success is something else, and I can appreciate that. It may be sheer luck to find yourself at the top of an industry, but it takes smarts and drive and a host of other traits to stay there, which I admire about them. Even if I disagree with how they do it. Which I typically do. Openly, as if that matters to them. I'll wrap this up with this disclaimer, I've been wrong before. I didn't think Zuck would be as successful as a CEO as he's been, and the same goes for Matt M., who I knew he'd never say goodbye to WordPress. He's turned it into a foundation, but from the subsidiaries, he makes bank and still has a lot of power in some places. And that's all it's about to many people. And that's a perspective from the user's side. What about monetization? How can brands and products use this platform? It's going to be tough without being awkward. If you want an invitation to Clubhouse let me know. Clubhouse is a fad. Change my mind if you aren't familiar with the Clubhouse app, then you're probably just learning OJ Simpson is a double murderer. Actually, that's pretty harsh. There are many reasons a lot of people haven't heard of it, and maybe never will. It's a hyped up fad. I'm on it, as are a few of my better networked, business, and tech friends. Granted, that demographic tends to be biased towards an older crowd. Who's using the app the most seems to be millennials and 30-somethings. To really be a unicorn or IPO at $100 billion and keep growing, however, there need to be some serious stars aligned. The killer app. As we used to say. I can punch quite a number of holes in this app. I've been on it and around it for a few weeks now, and researched and follow what's going on with it. It's in beta right now, which means it's limited to invitees only and is only available on iOS phones, which are only Apple phones, and you have to give out your phone number to activate it. You can reserve a username, even though you don't have an invitation. That's to get people to commit, become excited, and is more marketing strategy than operational necessity. I know that. But I'm not sure everyone does. Here's a list of things I see as problematic for Clubhouse to be a long-term player and not just a really big flash in the pan. We see such things in tech all the time, so let's not forget that when evaluating my reasons Clubhouse is a fad. Also please remember that while some of these reasons may seem petty there are a lot of petty people in the world, so these reasons may be more or less important to you personally. But when trying to grow consistently higher MAU numbers, an app has to universally appealing and designed and marketed, and made. 1. It's for invited members only. 2. The good usernames are taken. 3. It's for outgoing, if not aggressive people. 4. Rooms tend to get crowded. 5. There are a lot of uninteresting clubs. 6. There are a lot of uninteresting rooms. 7. There are a lot of uninteresting users. 8. It's audio only. 9. Archives and searchability are difficult. 10. The onboarding is nil. 11. It intimidates people. 12. It's becoming a popularity contest, which no one really wins in. 13. It's a lot like amateur talk radio. 14. There are a lot of rules. 15. It's easily replicated. For those of you who think I'm wrong, I'm willing to debate it. Maybe on Clubhouse itself. 
but I can think of some strengths for the Clubhouse app as well. It's no weakling. 1. There are a couple of high-profile people using it. 2. Some topics are interesting. 3. People like to just listen to others talk. 4. Rolling it out as beta and invite-only works sometimes. 5. It has a lot of people and media hyping it up to the people who will like it and use it. Some people may want to debate Clubhouse's pros, but I'm here to explain its cons, because they're the reason I think the Clubhouse app will be a memory before too long. My lists are in no order of priority, but I may come back and rank them as such as time allows and I see Clubhouse grow to the point of saturation, then plummet and reach terminal velocity. Making it invite-only and calling it beta has both pros and cons. The pros are that even though it's being called, beta, I believe that's more of a marketing strategy than a developmental one. I'm not saying it doesn't offer some developmental benefits, such as allowing to pay for server strength as possible, instead of overloading and crashing servers from opening the floodgates. Although that approach isn't what would happen. An example I'd like to use is product T-Hunt that successfully rolled itself out as a beta with invites only. It was very successful but there's a big difference between Product Hunt and Clubhouse. Several, in fact. Product Hunt is an online website that was built by going through Y Combinator by Ryan Hoover, who's savvy with his enterprises. When he rolled out PH, he personally brought people on board, which was a lot of work, but it paid off. I was member 14, 30 and he personally invited me and he and I became online acquaintances, which I'm sure he did with everyone. He made joining slash signing up personal and welcoming. Signing up for Clubhouse is different. You have to get an invitation from another person who's a member, and it's like you have someone vouching for you. Even though they may not know you from a hole in the ground. And you never really get to know the founders unless you stalk them down. They're too busy building the app and hanging out in rooms and clubs to chit-chat with every single user. That exclusion-slash-inclusion factor is psychologically strong. It triggers FOMO worries, and for those who are instinctually collective in nature, it causes them to panic. They must get an invitation ASAP so they can belong. There's some primal human behavior at play in being manipulated. On purpose. Most desired usernames are already taken. That may not seem like a big deal, but it makes it a loser to many people. And I mean the people who are interested in an app like Clubhouse where appearance and self-identity are important. I've seen the types of rooms and people on Clubhouse and they have strong ties to their online identities. Yes, I know the app is an iOS app. Let's pretend that it can also mean online for the sake of this essay. One strength is that it's already globally being used. I've been in rooms where another language other than English is being used several times already, from knowing some internationals. There are about 7 billion 200 million more people on this earth than in the USA, where many people think the earth begins and ends. Not quite. So the app appeals to the entire speaking world, so it scales. And scaling is what it's all about with SaaS. What I think are going to be some insurmountable obstacles is that the app is for people who aren't afraid of speaking in front of others. Even though it's not even close to getting on a stage and talking to 5,000 people, it still intimidates those who are fearful of public speaking, which includes most people on earth. There has been a survey done where people are more afraid of speaking in public than dying. So people would rather die than use this app. Not good. But let's say speaking in front of others becomes easier and a new normal. Even then, you have to be asked to get on stage and you have to wave your hand to speak, and follow clubhouse protocol and know the etiquette and social rules, lest you be decried, shamed, and humiliated by a bunch of strangers. That's pretty harsh. And, even aside from the clubhouse rules, you need to know how to speak in public with some grace and not um, ah, uh, er and stammer your way along an incoherent path of crazy words. Even the best speakers rehearse their speech a lot before getting on stage. 
it's impromptu on Clubhouse, which adds to fear and the reluctance of participating. And if people don't participate and speak, there is no app. It's reliant on there being interesting and relevant media to absorb, think about and engage with. That's hard after a while. It produces a bell curve sooner or later of just a few speakers that take the winnings, and the rest slide down to either end of the bell down to the long tails. With 5 degrees of freedom. And before you know it, you have 20% of the member creating 80% of the content. Statistically, that could be a lot, but is it sustainable? After a while, it's just going to be talk radio on an app. The media has hyped it all up. Not media with any credibility, mind you. The NY Times, Peak Mag, Social Media Examiner, Business Insider, and a long list of online rags. To many people that use the app, again, these publications define the truth for them and that's the end of that. But for some people, these publications aren't what they profess to be. Which is unbiased, blind, smart, diligent, and wise, which is different from smart. They have agendas and are prejudiced and more often than not, are written by people who have little experience with what they're writing about. I've seen food writers get assigned to finance and tech subjects at some reputable publications which have online media channels. New York Times, I'm looking at you. You, too, Washington Post. Mark Andressen was someone who hyped the app, to begin with. That's all it takes for many if not most media to fall over themselves to report on the item and declare it whatever he says it is. I have mixed feelings about Mark, along with quite a few other Silicon Valley darlings. I honestly try to be as unbiased about them as possible. They're gazillionaires and have an interesting life, which always looks greener than it is from my side of the fence, I know. I tend to think he was at the right place at the right time and knew the right people, and his success, at the beginning at least, was no more attributed to that. I have the same feeling for Matt Mullenweg and Mark Zuckerberg, and a long list of SV billionaires. Even if they're only such on paper. To sustain their success is something else, and I can appreciate that. It may be sheer luck to find yourself at the top of an industry, but it takes smarts and drive and a host of other traits to stay there, which I admire about them. Even if I disagree with how they do it. Which I typically do. Openly, as if that matters to them. I'll wrap this up with this disclaimer, I've been wrong before. I didn't think Zuck would be as successful as a CEO as he's been, and the same goes for Matt M., who I knew he'd never say goodbye to WordPress. He's turned it into a foundation, but from the subsidiaries, he makes bank and still has a lot of power in some places. And that's all it's about to many people. And that's a perspective from the user's side. What about monetization? How can brands and products use this platform? It's going to be tough without being awkward. If you want an invitation to Clubhouse let me know. What are your salary expectations? A bold question, no? It's is a question that I'm asked 98% of the time on a job application, first thing when applying, along with the usual questions and personal information requested. Name, address, phone number, email address, LinkedIn profile, education, experience, mandatory EEOC questioning to ensure discrimination doesn't take place, which is to say, to make sure it does take place, possibly a few preliminary questions about strengths weaknesses, and then the final question. What are your salary expectations? I haven't spoken to anyone at the company at this point usually. The real specific expectations and duties of the job haven't been provided yet. No additional information about the role may or may not entail, or anything further about the company's competitors, its goals for the firm or the position, and what vision the visionaries and executives have for the company and role. There has been no indication of what's been budgeted for the position, nor what the company may be able to spend. Most of the companies I interview with and apply it are private, so their revenue and budgets are private as well. 
I have no idea what range they have in mind to spend for the position for which they're hiring. I've hired many folks for many different roles, so I've been on both sides of the salary negotiation table. And I usually save the money for the end of the hiring discussion to make sure we have a fit. The applicant is indeed interested, and has all the pertinent information going to the negotiation table. I like everything to be above board and all parties comfortable with the process and people who make up the company. I don't want there to be any awkwardness post-hiring, like I tried to hide something or pull a fast one because I don't do such things. Depending on the company's policy on the openness of salaries, I abide by it. Some companies want wages a secret. That's a hard thing to do well, i found. With the internet and the way people like to murmur and talk, it creates some friction eventually. On the flip side, some companies are wide open about salaries. That's also a little dangerous. If you work for the government or a governmental entity, your pay usually is publicly available anyway. That goes for university professors all the way to police, administrators, and anyone else that's employed by the state or federal government. I find it's not a big deal in that case because in nearly every case, they're way overpaid compared to the private sector. The employees, who also are members of unions, certainly won't admit that, though. Typically the other way around, they claim their poverty level. But back to the topic. What are your salary expectations? I know companies are looking for a figure with that question. That's silly given the aforementioned reasons. So I usually complete the space, if possible with text, to reflect what I just explained above. I expect the salary to reflect the expectations, duties and effort, skills, experience, education, and whatever else is required to fulfill the role and do the company's job to the best of my ability. Within the budget, the company has determined that I have no way of knowing. The question is asked right off the bat, with no input by any representative of the company. So I see what's going on, the company is using the leverage it has at hand, being the employer with the open position desired by the applicant, who has a lower hand at that stage. The company has the upper hand. Negotiations have already begun without stating such. Again, I feel that's jumping the gun and putting the horse before the cart, to use two cliché metaphors. And what ends up happening? A few things. But let me first say something truly as far as myself is concerned, I wouldn't be spending my time applying and showing my interest and jumping through quite a few hoops if I weren't interested in the position what range salary the work usually involves. I'm not throwing my hat into the ring blindly. I do my due diligence and research, and as an employee, I know what positions in my industry and field command and what I am worth in the open market. I've worked as a freelance and consultant, which proves down to the penny what I'm worth in the open market. Because people pay precisely what I ask. We negotiate that very thing frequently. And I've been hired in the open marketplace by large firms. One that does over $100 million in revenue per year and the other is the largest company on earth, Amazon. And if you don't think they know what people and positions are worth with the data and hundreds of thousands of employees they have, and hire tens of thousands of people at a time, then you're nuts. So, what are my salary expectations? What are yours? Is a better question and better saved for the end of the application process. What happens when the question is asked, and an eyebrow-raising figure or responses I give are inserted in the space? The applicant is immediately put into the trash can and an excellent applicant is immediately and shamefully dismissed for no real good reason, and no discussion or interview happens whatsoever. Salary is a touchy subject, and it shouldn't be. My salary through the years has been high and increasingly so. But that has no bearing on what I'm seeking at this point in my life now what a position I'm applying for should bear. I'm applying for jobs in South Carolina right now. And for jobs that may command higher or lower salaries than I've made in the past. Those roles have nothing to do with the companies or positions I'm applying for now. 
So when a hiring manager cringes when I tell them my previous salaries, which I've seen them do, they absolutely shouldn't because they have nothing to do with my current goals or salary expectations.